so I'm actually, this is something I'm really passionate about and I'm making light of it, but seriously, just do it. I, I'm privileged in the position I met that I get to interview a lot of people for a lot of different positions. And I'll just let you guys in on a little secret, but nine times out of 10, the best resume item is your GitHub profile or your GitLab or you know your Git equivalent, right? Or whatever source code you use. Go find something to contribute to. Find something you're, and, and the key is, find something you're personally interested in. Not something you're forcing yourself to do. It shouldn't be a chore. I'm not talking the guys who just need to do it nine to five because they want to pay the mortgage. I mean, find something you're passionate about. If it's about writing little apps for your car because you're you know, a car guy, do it. Contribute to that. It'll keep you interested. It's a hobby. It's great. If it's, you know, if you want to surf for the weekend and you want to go write an app that helps keep track of where to go surf and where the best waves are, do it. Just find something you're passionate about and get involved. There's, I almost guarantee you, there's probably already a project on GitHub or if there's not, make one, but contribute. And because it's all open and transparent and out there, that's some of the best resume material you could possibly ever have. With me on the show today is Chris Moore. Chris is the Senior Vice President of Engineering at iX Systems and the man behind PCBSD. Chris, thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. Oh, no problem. Glad to be here. It's great to talk to you. So this is going to be an interesting conversation because I've known you since I'd say probably about 2015. But in thinking about it, anything that we've normally talked about has always been about FreeBSD, PCBSD, iX Systems, uh, True Command, all of those things, TrueNAS. Yep. And not really about you individually. And I thought, well, you know what? It's about time that I actually got uh -oh. to know a little bit more about you. Um, hopefully, it won't be too, you know, too in invasive. My shirt but, size, uh, you know, let's see. Yeah, no, no, we're not, <laughs> not going to get into that kind of stuff. Okay. <laughs> so to start out, let's start at the beginning, at, at the origin, because people love origin stories. Do you remember, like, the first time you sat down and used a computer? First time I, oh gosh, now you're going back to like early childhood. So yeah, I do. Um, Trying to remember what the first system was. I would have been seven, eight. So I was born in 1980, full disclosure. So I'm a child of the 80s. My parents, I want to say the first system was an Apple II GS going okay. back. They had something that I found years later in a closet that was like a, a cassette tape with a, and some computer things you could load. I never really figured out what that was. That's predates me. But they did get an Apple II GS and I got to learn on that. But really, I would say I'd, that wasn't interesting to me. What was interesting is when they bought that first uh, 386 with a whopping 512k of memory. Wow. And oh, yeah. And then my dad and mom wanted to have an encyclopedia for the longest time. So they mm -hmm. went and invested in a shiny new CD-ROM drive at one point, And that necessitated four megabytes of memory, you know, so you could load the encyclopedia program. But no, my, my early days were all on DOS. And, you know, I was a, a young kid in the 80s. So being able to play games was important and load things up like uh, uh, X-Wing when that came out. That was one of my favorite or X-Wing or, or uh, TIE Fighter was awesome. And I remember yep. making, this was pre-internet. So I remember back then you had to just kind of figure it out. I had a few books, but you know, I was young and I remember making boot floppies and had a, you know, being able to set, I forget now, like EMS memory so you could play certain games. Like it was, it was fun. So that, that's the early, early, early days. Right. And then over time, you know, we, our computer got better and we did more with it. I remember loading Windows 3.1 on it. And eventually we got a system that could run Windows 95 and kind of went from there. But my first like outside of desktop 
type experience was when I got a, I volunteered as a, I guess, an intern at a uh, internet provider in Vancouver, Washington, which folks don't know. There's a Vancouver and Washington state as well. It's right across the river from Portland, Oregon, not, not BC. I'm not Canadian, but um, anyway, a little dial up ISP there. I want to say I started there in 96. So I would have been 16. You know, I was uh, homeschooled. Um, almost my whole life, went to public school for a little while when I was young. But that meant my hours were very flexible. So I could be done with my school day at noon, you know, just depending on what I had done. So I had time to burn in the evenings and my my folks let me volunteer at a uh, internet provider. And so I started there just answering the phones, you know, the usual, who can I direct the call to, you know, is this billing, is it tech support, whatever. Heck, I even swept the floors for a while. So, but I remember at some point, one of the the owners there sat me down and was like, oh, you you have computer skills, right? Like, you know how to do some things. So I was like, yeah, you know, I play games and blah, blah, blah. So they put me back in the uh, tech cube area, which was like three people. And they said, okay, well, we're going to get you set up and train you how to take phone calls and, you know, do dial-up troubleshooting. So they brought me to a little Windows box and I forget what terminal we were using at the time. Maybe it was hyperterm or something, but I, they ended up giving me this weird login prompt I'd never seen before, which ended up being one of the very early FreeBSD versions. I want to say they were running on like a, a two or something. It was, oh, wow. it was old, but that was what they used for the, uh, for the dial-up banks of modems was FreeBSD. And so they had a, a prompt you could log into and they, oh, you can, you can create a public HTML folder and have a little website that appears. So then I was like trying to figure out how to do HTML. And, you know, they showed me how to do some basic command line commands to go and, you know, reset a stuck modem that, that mm-hmm. you know, those little kind of maintenance things. Right. And then, you know, one thing led to another. And I didn't even realize till years later what it was that I had really been exposed to because that was just that ISP. Then I went to college and got sucked into Linux. And I was like, oh, there's this Red Hat thing. What, what's Red Hat? And then SUSE. And uh, gosh, I did Mandrake, tried that out. I worked at a at college. I spent the summer in their computer department basically doing swap out of gear. They were on a four-year cycle. So you would go through all summer and you know clear out a dorm, all the old PCs, recycle them, and put the new ones in, right? Use Ghost uh, uh, to image drives, all, all that good stuff, right? But anyway... A bunch of those, you know, should have been recycled PCs ended up in the back of my car because I'm a nerd and, you know, that's what nerds do is they hold on to old equipment. So I ended up with those in my room one summer and it was up there loading Red Hat on it and, you know, different Linuxes. And I discovered FreeBSD again and was like, oh, that's what I was using at the ISP when I first started. Like it all came back to me, you know. So that, that that's the early days, you know, I guess just where I first got my start on some different things, you know, desktop and then Unix. Oh, I even beta tested, what was it? Windows uh, 2000, I remember. Okay. That was an exciting day. Microsoft actually sent me CDs in the mail and I was, oh, wow. so, I was so proud. Like, it was like <laughs> oh, I'm an official beta tester. This is so cool. <laughs> Everybody's rolling their eyes like, that's stupid. But, <laughs> but it yeah, was I cool. Think, <laughs> I think back then Microsoft would just send out CDs to anybody if you... Uh... If you signed up, hey man, it was special to me. Don't burst my bubble. Oh no, I, no, I, I feel, feel really this, special. I completely agree. The first time I sent out for uh, Open Solaris disk and I got one back, I was like, oh wow, they actually sent one. Yeah, wow, this is cool. Yeah, I know. I was so honored. I was like, oh, I got my own beta key and everything. So I got it loaded up, and it was, of course, awful. <laughs> the thing barely ran, but it was it was really cool. Oh, and I did get to beta test. Uh, I beta tested some games in high school too. I remember being active in the Blizzard stuff, okay. so I got a hold of an early beta of uh, StarCraft. Mm-hmm. Ah, good days. Yeah. Good days. Speaking about the games and the boot disks, I remember the pain of when you wanted to play a game trying to find, because I never labeled any of my floppy disks. 
which boot disk it was that did the memory the right way for that game yeah. because different games had different requirements. Yeah. And it was like, huh, okay, hold on. Um, which one? Did, so I'd have to try all of them until I figured out, okay, yeah, this is the one for this game. Kids these days do not understand the difficulty that we used to have. They don't know the, the struggle. I had to figure out how to write a batch script back in the day. There's all kinds of little things to do. And especially, again, pre-internet. Yeah. Right. Like there was no Google to go just, hey, I mean, there was no uh, GitHub or Stack Exchange where I could go copy and paste a, a script where someone else figured it out. This right. was hours and hours and hours of trial and error and rebooting. Mm-hmm. And, oh, my God, it was horrible. But we were persistent. It was the cool thing back then yeah. to do. And it was exciting. And plus, it meant I got to stay inside and not go outside because that's where uh, where it's hot and nasty and there's bugs and stuff. So, yeah. You know. <laughs> So yeah, it fit my personality well. <laughs> right. And I think actually it served us well because we had to learn that kind of investigative, okay, the system's broken. Let me go down the list of things that it could possibly be. How do I do this? How do I fix this? And not just let me find an answer and copy and paste and I'm on and I didn't actually learn anything. Like yeah. that time was tough, but we all learned important oh, yeah. things during that time. The most important thing was learning how to learn, mm-hmm. I think, in many ways. And that's something that I, you know, I sometimes lament with my kids even because it's so easy for them now. And it's like, man, you got to teach yourself how to learn before yeah. you do anything else. You got to, you know, I, a lot of times when they ask me some of these things, I don't even try and fix it for them now. I'm like, let's, well, what did you, how'd you look it up? What did you do to go see if you could solve the problem? Unless the network's down in that case, I usually fix it pretty quick because, you know, that bothers me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. They'll just get dad to fix it instead of the yeah, internet to fix yeah. it. Yeah. Dad, the internet's down. Uh, I know. My alarms went off. <laughs> so anyway. were you, after you got that job in, you know, doing the stuff with the ISP and doing the tech support, was that kind of where you decided, hey, I really like this tech thing. I want to go for it. Or did that come later? Oh, no, no. I knew earlier than that. I, so okay. you got to understand, I'd... Um, I did the game thing for quite a while, but I was always interested in programming. Okay. So I wrote my my first game. I would have been 12, maybe 13. Um, DOS game. I remember downloading, what was it? The Allegro libraries and DJGPP. I'm trying to remember yep. the acronym now. And so I, I we went to, what was it? Barnes & Noble or Borders or one of those bookstores, whoever was around at the time. And I got this book, you know, and it was really cool because it had a wizard on the front. It was like, teach yourself to program, right? And so um, I spent, gosh, I must have spent six months uh, writing this game. It was in, uh, what was this? No, this would have been C because um, I was trying to think of the libraries and I was able to initialize VGA, do a really low res console. And so I built a little tank game, never published it again, pre-internet. I didn't have anybody to yeah. sh- just people come over and I would show them, right? But um little game where I built a map editor I w- and I went and did everything in hand with Microsoft Paint, um, you know, drawing little tiles. And that was like the first part of the game I wrote was the map editor. So you could go and generate a map and basically pick the tiles you wanted to drop on the ground to build the map and then save uh-huh. the map file and reopen it, right? So that must have taken me months to figure out. And believe me, I suck at graphics. I was horrible, uh, you know, even worse then probably. But I made it work. It looked like a little map and you had roads and trees and houses and blah, blah, blah. And it worked. And then I started working on the game and that was another few months. And I got to the mm-hmm. point where you could drive the tank around, hit spacebar to shoot. And then I kind of lost interest and in, in whatever. Because <laughs> yeah, at this point, I'm six months in. You know, it's not like I could share. I didn't know how to share it with anybody, you right. know, apart from putting it on a floppy and giving it to my friends. And it was always just a, something I was noodling on. But that was, you know, that was when I knew I was, I wanted to do computer stuff, you know, for 
my career and professionally. And heck, even if I wasn't doing it professionally, it would be a hobby at minimum. But uh, you know, that, that itch never went away. So I always got to have something like that to noodle on. So then I guess the question would be, how did you end up not going into game development and instead going into like systems development? Math. Back okay. then, you were starting to get into games, and everything was 3D, and there was 3D engines and stuff. By the time, you know, by 2000, by the time I got to college, and honestly, games started losing some interest for me. I wasn't playing them quite as much okay. anymore, and making them was kind of interesting. But you know, there was a lot of again physics and math, and the 3D gaming wasn't as interesting to me. I love the I love the old school retro. Like I'm a Final Fantasy kid. Okay, you know, like the early ones, like yeah. three. You know, but. uh so I lost a little bit of interest. And then I kind of got more into operating systems. I became more interested in how the thing worked. In other words, the, the, the programming a game wasn't really about that I wanted to make games. It was more that I was just curious because I liked games. How do they work? And then, you know, you dig down a layer and it's like, okay, now I've got another layer. What's this, you know, what are these libraries? And then, oh, there's a kernel. And, you know, just kind of, you kept going down. And eventually someday maybe I'll get into soldering again and like work on the hardware. Maybe not. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's too far. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, it's just I was always just more curious to take it apart and see how it worked and tinker and fool with it and say, oh, well, if I rearrange the pieces this way or do it a little differently, I can build something new. I was always interested in not necessarily inventing something from scratch, but saying I could take these existing pieces and like Legos, I can mm-hmm. build something new out of this. That's right. interesting to me anyway. Okay. So you used FreeBSD when you were younger, you then got to college, you started using Linux and then you found FreeBSD again. At what point did you kind of grok what open source was aside from this is just software I can run? Yeah. I think my first exposure to it was you didn't have to pay for it. I was a poor college student. I had no money and it was like, I can't afford a Windows license and I wasn't going to go download it from the Russian sites. Right. Um, so I was like, oh, well, there's a free thing you can run. Okay, I'll check out the free thing. Right. And FreeBSD had free in the name. So it doesn't sound any more free than that. So and then it wasn't until a little later that I kind of figured out, oh, you can see all the source code. I remember the first time I started building ports from scratch on FreeBSD. And that was a big deal because I felt like I was in control. Made It made you feel good to go, oh, I know what code is being used to run the things I'm running and I know how to rebuild that. And that, that level of detail was kind of cool to me. You know, I've gotten old and cranky since then. I don't have time to build things from source as much. But, you know, you know that, was, that was the first foray into it. And I remember even in those early days, there was times I'd run into little things that bothered me, bugs, or, or, oh, I'd like to update this or that. And then, you know, the internet was a thing now. And so, oh, here's a patch. Or I found somebody on a message board that said, here's a problem they had. Oh, they have, you know what? Let me go patch that code and recompile that and try it. Oh, hey, that fixed my problem. Cool. Like, I felt like I did something. So that, that's where I kind of got into open source and then started over time that developed my philosophy about open source really is a superior way of life. I, I'm not a big fan of black boxes. You mm-hmm. Avoid them where you can. Right. You know, there are some, I guess, suppose that are necessary for certain things. But, you know, open source as a philosophy was important to me and, and giving people the freedom to say, it's yours, you own it, you bought it, do with it what you will. If you want to void your warranty, go for it. Like I'm all, I, I had that T-shirt for the longest time. It said I void warranties and it had all the screwdriver types on it. You know, like that's fun. I, I think people should have that freedom and right. So I guess it would be obvious then to say that you're a strong proponent of the uh, right to repair movement. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, again, I recognize a company may say, look, 
you take your life into your own hands. If you crack the hood and, and start fooling with pieces, you know, just don't come crying to us. If it's, I like to use the analogy. Okay. So um, with a car, this is, is an easy analogy, right? You know, you can go buy your Honda and if you decide to put an aftermarket, uh, you know, whatever, do it, a new carburetor, or you decide to go change out the uh, alternator. That's great. Do it. Like I'm all for that. Let's make that easier to do. Just don't take it back to the dealer and ask them to fix it for you when you screw it up. That's, that's my only thing is don't, uh, don't create your own problems and then expect others to clean up your mess. But yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. If you have the skill and the time or the hobby or the interest and want to like, please, absolutely, you know, get in and tinker. So with us, because of our age, we kind of grew up with the, that was just the way things were. Mm -hmm. Now as a father, do you see a difference with your kids in them having no interest? Cause like with us, I don't know if we necessarily had the interest, but it was just, it was what you did. Whereas yeah. now there's the option of you can, but, or you cannot. Do you, do you see generationally a difference between our generation and the younger generations? There is. And I hope the younger generation will get to a point where they do get a little more curious about how things work underneath and dig down. Don't get me wrong. There's always, it's a big world. There's lots of people. Yeah. So obviously there's always going to be a percentage of people who just do that because they're bent that way. Right. But, you know, I think as a generational thing, it is a lot easier. You know, I, I've given my kids a hard time and maybe other parents have had this story who have kids kind of my age, you know, they're between eight and 18 now. Right. But I, you know, I'm a big movie guy. That was my thing I did to relax. So I had a huge collection of DVDs and Blu-rays and all that, just a wall, you know, covered with them, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. So I spent, you know, a good 10 years building up this movie library. And then a few years ago, it hit me. I was like, my kids don't ever watch any of these movies. I got a gazillion kids movies up here and all kinds of stuff. They don't watch them. So I, you know, Frunaz, Frunaz, I started doing Plex. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to put all these on a Plex server. And lo and behold, they watch them all now. <laughs> because they were too stinking lazy to go pull a disc off the shelf and put it in a player. That was too many steps required. And I, my mind is still kind of blown by that. They're, they're the YouTube generation. They just want to hit a yeah. button and video starts streaming. And I don't want to think about it. I just want convenience. And so they would watch crappier stuff and still do <laughs> on YouTube to this day than like quality, like well-produced, well-made movies or whatever, just because of the convenience angle. And once I put them on Plex, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, I didn't know we had these. I'm like, you walk by the shelf every single day, but you just couldn't take the time. Anyway. It is a generational thing, I think. They've gotten, they've gotten really <laughs> spoiled. <laughs> uh, hopefully, hopefully the generation can make a U-turn and get a little more interested in things. I think they will, out of necessity. At some point, you know, us old fogies will retire and somebody's got to figure out how to keep the surfers running. And do, uh, so, yeah, yeah, at some point, dad's going to stop fixing the problem and they're going to yes. have to do themselves. When my 18-year-old moves out, he just turned 18. Okay. When his network goes down, I'm not going to be available to go pop over and just fix it all the time. So at some point, he'll have to figure out, you know, oh, that's what the router does. Oh, that's what the, oh, I should, pa oh, okay. You know, so they'll get there. It's just maybe... Maybe because of modern conveniences, they don't have to do that in their early childhood now. And it's more of an adult thing. But then there's the situation of, well, what if he wants to stay home for the next 10 years, which uh, that's not <laughs> happening. I'm moving him out for that. <laughs> yeah, at some point, you got to put your foot down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, no. You're, you're ready to leave the nest. Get out. Go, go pay for your own internet access. So on, uh, on solving problems, you had talked earlier about you were doing ports and you figured out that sometimes things needed a patch and stuff like that. Would you say that working on the porch tree was the first time you committed to an outside project other than just something you were working on yourself? Or was there an earlier instance? 
That's a great question. I'm having to think back now. I, um, yes, I want to say ports was probably one of the first times. Um, there was a brief period before I kind of got big into FreeBSD again, where I had taken, uh, but you're going to laugh when I say this, but uh, Lindos, do you remember that? I do indeed. So I, we, we had just gotten married. I was 21. So we got married young and you know, I had a PC again and no money. So I was like, oh, well, let's put this Linux thing on there. And so we set up Lindos and I wrote some little, uh, little graphical application to make it easier to install apps. And uh, for whatever reason, I don't know, it just wasn't as interesting and on Linux. And then I went back to FreeBSD and the build system was so much more elegant. It was clean and easy. And so I started working on ports. All right. I think that, so I'll count that. We'll say ports was one of the, if not the first, one of the very first things I contributed something to. Okay. So extending that a, a little further, as you start working on ports, you then, I'm assuming, get more involved into kind of the larger FreeBSD community? So no, my, my entry into the FreeBSD community was a little weird. Um, I, I'm a little bit of a lone wolf in the sense that I was, I'm not the guy who's out there just wanting to chat for the sake of chatting and mm-hmm. you know, talking to strangers on the internet. Well, that's creepy. So, <laughs> so I just got an itch to scratch. And I remember thinking, hey, I can take FreeBSD and probably build something out of this that I can use and my wife can use and we can run a desktop and I don't have to go buy an expensive Windows license because I couldn't afford the 100 bucks. But I had lots of time. So I kind of in a silo just went off and I don't even remember the version now. Was it what? FreeBSD 5? <laughs> it's been a while. No, no. I remember I did. There was a FreeBSD 7. Anyway, I'd have to go back and look now. Gosh, this would have been like 2003. So I need to go back and look and see. But anyway, um, I sat down and just came up with this idea of PCBSD. I, I took somebody else, I forget who now had written Frisbee, if you remember that, which was the free BSD Live CD, which was awesome. And I downloaded that, loved it. That was a great way to try before you buy. But I was like, man, why hasn't anybody slapped an installer on this that's graphical and easy to set up? Because, you know, FreeBSD is kind of a, pain in the rear out of box to kind of get you from, you know, I just installed to here's my working desktop. Because really what it was all about was I just need a working desktop so I can get on the internet and do email and stuff. So I sat down and wrote in using uh, C++ and Qt, because that was the thing I'd picked up over the years, a graphical installer um, that ran on top of a Frisbee image, which I knew how to build because we're building from source. And when you clicked it, it was all very next, next, you know, select your hard drive next, put your username in next, blah, blah, blah. And then we just had a pre-built KDE 3 environment on it. Again, so nobody had to compile because who's got time to sit around and and wait for KDE to compile? That thing took a day on that hardware back then. It was a beast. And then, you know, so anyway, so I did all that and um, I ran into... Matt Olander. Uh, okay, so, so about, okay. about this point, because this is one thing I've been curious about is how you got linked up with IX. Okay. I've heard various stories uh. and they cover they cover a massive range of all, like the probability space here is massive. And I've heard things from like, you just kind of like walked up to an IX booth at the conference, kind of threw some CDs down and just kind of stood there like you were part of the team to like <laughs> you walked up in slow motion. There was music playing behind you. You know, you threw down some CDs on the desk. An angel trumpet and went off. No, no, you pulled out, you know, your, your silver food cake frosting, sprayed your mouth like in Fury Road, threw your arms back and were like, witness me. But I'm assuming, I'm assuming the truth is somewhere between those two extremes. Yeah, it's probably not quite that dramatic. How exactly did that go? 
So what happened was I had, so I just went and published this PCBSD image online. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, PCBSD 0.7a or something stupid. I didn't even know how to do versioning at the time. But (laughs) anyway, I published it online and I was like, you know, this is neat. And I got some people emailing me saying, hey, this is really cool. Could you send me a copy? You know, because even back then it still sucked to download a 700 meg image. So I was like, okay. So I went into the, gosh, CompUSA? Was that still the thing? Anyway, I went to one of those stores and I bought a CD burner and I bought uh, online, I bought a shrink wrap machine and, you know, one of those little printable labels you could make on your inkjet. And so I just made a bunch of CDs and I shrunk wrapped them because I'm like, well, if somebody's going to send me money through the mail for something, it would just, I don't want it to look janky. I want it to look like I tried, <laughs> even though I'm a one man shop, it's literally just doing this in my my little home office in my bedroom, actually, because I didn't even have a home office. Um, so anyway, so I had this little stack of, you know, 10 to 15 CDs I had made and, you know, did a little artwork on them and shrink wrapped them and, you know, they look nice. So anyway, uh, fast forward a little bit. I forget how I found out, but um, I was living again, Washington State at the time next to Portland, Oregon and OSCon was a conference there. And somehow or another, I found out there was an OS con and um, on the website, I saw there was a free BSD booth. So I didn't just walk up and announce. I emailed beforehand and Matt answered and I said, hey, um, I'm the guy behind PCBSD and he had heard of me, which I was like, oh, that's really cool. I didn't know you'd heard of this, but I, you know, do you mind if I come squat and use some of your booth space? I have some CDs I could hand out, you know, and I didn't. It was just a like, ah, oh, what the hell? I'll go do it. You know, there was no right. like grand scheme. You know, I, I'm not going to get rich off this, but it was like, this was kind of a cool thing I did. Maybe somebody else will find some use out of this. So anyway, I showed up and maybe I overdressed. I was dressed kind of nice. I didn't know better. <laughs> it was my first conference. <laughs> so you have a nice shirt on and stuff, you know, long pants, you know, the whole layers. So I show up with these nice, like shrink wrapped, boxed CDs and stuff. And, and Matt was just kind of like, oh, my God. He's like, the stuff you're doing looks better than we're doing, and we're business. Like, oh, how did you do all this? I was like, I bought a shrink wrap machine on Amazon or online or you know, just some CD labels. It wasn't that hard, Matt. Like, <laughs> It's a shame a that, that the people that listening to this don't actually know Matt because I can totally see how that you, conversation would go down. Yeah, you've met Matt, so yeah. you can picture it. You can fill in the, the gaps. But anyway, he was pretty impressed. And, you know, uh, hey, let's go out to dinner afterwards. So we sat and, and we just went out and talked. And I guess it's... So Matt, if you're listening to this, forgive me. My memory's gotten bad. This, this is now 16, 17 years ago. But I, uh, what I recall was at the time, IX was still tiny, tiny company. I think less than 20 people, if I recall. Um, and Matt mentioned something about they had hired a developer to do kind of a free BSD desktop distribution at IX. They were hoping to go and make their own and, you know, do something cool with free BSD. What I recall, the developer worked on it for a while and it was kind of the, the usual story. You get 90% there and then you find out the last 10% is actually 90% of the work. Right. And then everyone freaks out and, you know, doesn't finish it. Right. So that's what happened. The guy walked off, uh, didn't finish the 
didn't finish the project. So um, he was just really impressed that I did it on my own. I wasn't getting paid. This I had a job. I was doing tech support for another company at the time. This was just my kind of evening passion project, you right. know. And so, hey, what would it take for you to come over to IX and work, and we'll we'll buy the PCBSD project, and you can come take a gamble. And you know, IX was a huge gamble at the time. Small company. Who knows? Would they be here in five years? Don't know. You know, small little server integrator didn't really have any software to speak of at the time. So why not? I came over, you know, and the rest they say is history. But, you know, I started doing PCBSD. Long story short, did PCBSD for many years, traveled all around. A lot of evangelism for not only PCBSD and FreeBSD, but IX as well. IX has kind of grown throughout that whole time, obviously. A few years back, stepped into doing more of the TrueNAS development. You know, the desktop thing has lost some interest. It's not the market space. It's just not the way it was, you know, back in the early 2000s, right? Right. And got more into the enterprise storage side and... uh, here we are now. So back then when you first hooked up with IX, was it going under the IX systems name? Because I know it, it it changed from, I was it IX servers or something? Because I know it actually dates back all the way to BSDI. And there's, there's, well, a, there's that fun chain of how it ended up where it is now. I think that, and again, this is where my memory gets fuzzy. When I joined, it was off my server because there was still some... Maybe they had the IX name now as far as the website, but there was still some legal thing where they hadn't changed the corporation name back over because I think for a while they were not operating. They were operating as off my servers. And I recall when that happened and then all of a sudden we had to redo some of my stuff and it said IX systems on it now. But yeah, it was under the under the previous name before IX you know, went official. Kind of looking back more on your your journey overall in open source and development. Are there any specific people that kind of stand out to you that kind of helped mold your your view and your perspective of open source? Of open source? Well, Matt, I got to give him a lot of credit. He's he's like, so I'm an oldest child, but Matt's like the big brother I didn't have, right? If I had an older brother, Matt would have been that. He uh, He really just firm, firm believer in open source and will preach it every chance he gets to this day. And uh, so that, you know, that was probably my first biggest influence because I was doing it just out of practicality at the time. And and it took a while for me to really get into it and understand kind of the, the mentality behind it and the open source ethos and why we prefer this over closed. But, uh, you know, him and then there have been other people along the way, along the journey uh, at IX, you know, uh, some folks like uh, Josh Petzl was uh, a, a friend for many years and learned a lot from him. And yeah, I got people now that are still pushing me on open source. You know, I got William Grabowski here who's heading up our Trunez team. Fantastic guy. But uh, no, it's been a long journey. You know, met people in and out of the community and yeah, some good, some bad, some ugly. You know, that's what happens anytime you're part of any community, I suppose. It's people. That's always the weak part, right? Yeah, <laughs> humans, humans can get kind of... Uh complicated at times. I, I remember Josh would always say people have the worst APIs, which he's right about that. They do. But um, anyway, no, no, no. It was it was good, though. A lot of conferences, a lot of good talks, always to get inspired. It always seemed like I would go to conferences and come away with a lot more work than I went in with because pe- you get inspired. You go there. Oh, that's really cool. I had no idea. So and so was doing this. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. I should incorporate that into my project. And so, you know, we, we feed off of one another. It's good. That's why it's good to collaborate and use tools like you know, your Gits and your Slacks and your other things to just keep that communication open because that's that's where the spirit of collaboration is happening these days. Although now my kids are telling me it's all on Discord, so apparently I'm old. But Yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan whatever. of Discord either. But is what it is. Hey, yeah. at least they're collaborating somewhere. That's true. So <laughs> since conferences have been, you know, persona non grata over the last two years because of the uh, human malware that's going around. You mentioned about how 
you know, you would go there, you would get inspired ideas, you'd see things. Obviously, though, there have been virtual conferences, and of course, we're still all online as talking. Um, yep. Are there certain things, and this doesn't have to be just BSD related, um, but more kind of broader open source related, things that are being developed or improved on that you see and you're really excited to see where those go? Because of the virtual space? Oh, just in general. So I think this last year for us, I think the tools have kind of always been there, but it's just been from putting my business cap on for a second to being forced to embrace the idea of kind of virtual and remote work and seeing how effective we can be. That that is good because I'll be honest, you know, the conferences were fun. It was neat to travel some places and see different things and, oh, I get to go to this country and that. But as far as the collaboration element, I don't feel like we've suffered too, too badly. Don't get me wrong. There's there's the human element, which is great to be able to go and have a meal and hang out and do the social aspect. And that can actually buy a lot of goodwill and morale for groups of people working together, you know, to kind of get past the online persona. Some people come off a little worse online than they do in person. They're trying to put that politely. But all that said, the last couple of years has been interesting from, you know, again, the business perspective, seeing how well the team can collaborate and use these tools to their fullest potential now. And really the the physical presence of where you sit for a lot of jobs, some jobs, obviously it matters if you're working on things in the physical space, but in the development space, you know, as long as you can effectively communicate online and we're actually using Google meet right now, I don't Mm -hmm. know if I'm allowed to say that for the purposes of this podcast, (laughs) but you know, using tools like that to their advantage, webcams and, and good headphones and, you know, maybe eventually VR will pick up and we'll all meet in virtual space. I'm actually not looking forward to that side, to be honest. VR makes me horribly motion sick. But anyway, I mean, no, no, no. It's been, it's been good. Like I said, I feel like the tools were kind of there, but it just, the pandemic in a weird way helped leapfrog us ahead a few years out of necessity. You know, necessity is the mother of all invention. Same, I, again, I'm a movie guy. Same thing with the movie industries. I, I see the movie theaters as going away in the next 10 years. Why bother? You can get a big screen TV at home, pretty good sound. You don't have to deal with kids kicking the back of your seat, or maybe you do in my <laughs> house because I got kids, but it costs way less. And I think the pandemic kind of forced studios to say, yeah, we should offer streaming on day one for a lot of new release films. And it's working out. I think that's just accelerated the trend that was already there again, because of necessity. And I think the same thing happened with kind of the remote work uh, situation as well. And, and you know, we'll see how it pans out. Obviously, the pandemic, as it winds down, we may kind of go back to our old ways a bit, but it, it's interesting to see. And, to know that we can still work effectively and collaborate very effectively, even if we're not sitting in the exact same conference room physically. So it's good to see, to see how the teams have stepped up and how people have stepped up to make that work and be efficient. Yeah, I definitely hope that we get to a spot where hybrid is kind of the the, the mean that we arrive at. Because I do think there is definitely a value in the, the in-person meet space kind of meeting up and, and spending time with people. Because I know for myself, I'm one that people, when they just meet me online, they always come like, oh, that guy's an asshole. But then they meet me in real life and they're like, oh, you're actually really genuine. You're just being very direct and very clear yeah. about what you're saying, which in person you get and you can understand that. But online, yeah. it's just like, well, this guy's coming off a little aggressive. And it's like, I don't mean to. I'm just being very, well, very clear. So I will tell you one thing I use to kind of work around that is there's something about being able to see the person, even if it's on camera, that's still better than nothing. Because being able to read the body language, to see the twinkle in their eye when they're making a, a joke that, if I made it online with no, where you couldn't see me, you might take it as, wow, that guy's a dick. Like, you know, why did, but you know, if you see me, if you look at me, it's like, oh, he's just screwing with me. I can see the smile on his face. Right. So, you know, there, 
this is where, you know, when I'm having a conversation with someone online, I'll often just say, oh, let me call you real quick instead of just texting it. Because it's just, there is that human element that it's important to, to connect with. And as connectivity is getting better, and there's no reason not to do that. And that's probably going to become the preferred way we communicate for a lot of these things going forward, just to kind of bring back that human element. Yeah, it is, it is nice to see a lot more businesses embracing the remote work concept. What I think is interesting, though, is there seems to be a very strong push to like peel that back with a lot of places. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, you know how recruiters are. They're always, you know, headhunting people all the time. And it's, it's interesting to get recruiters saying, yeah, this is remote work for six months, but then you have yeah. to move. And it's like, if I can do the job for six months, why would I then have to move? Like you've been doing remote for a year and a half and your business has been fine. Yeah. Why does this suddenly change in another six months? Like, is there, is there a two year time limit on remote work? Like after that, it all blows up. Well, I don't, all the, all the tools expired. I mean, Google meets obviously getting shut down in a few months <laughs> and, you know, we'll stop using Slack, but no, it's, I think it's just business inertia. That's the way we used to do things. And so there's going to, there's going to be some element of that. I think the next year, year and a half are going to be very interesting for those of us in the business world, just to kind of look at what happened over the last year, year and a half. What were the pros? What were the cons? What were the successes? What were the misses? And then, you know, it takes time. Nobody likes to make snap decisions. And you, and you frankly, you got to be a little worried if the business is making just snap decisions like that and changing on a dime. But, you know, as as time goes on and we look at the results and we look at it a little bit more holistically and with more data, who knows? You know, business, some businesses will say, yeah, this was a great, you know, as much as the pandemic obviously was a tragedy and sucked. And don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to minimize the human element. But from the, oh, you know, remote work standpoint, you might have some folks say, yeah, that actually worked out really well for us. And we improved some processes as a result that we didn't know we could. You know, we were forced to. But once we got into it, yeah, that works really well. Other businesses, maybe not so much. Just it really depends on what you do. You know, we're obviously talking as developers. A lot of development work can be done remotely, but there's going to be other places where it's like, no, we really do need people hands on on, on equipment, turning screwdrivers. You know, those kind of jobs are always going to be. Yeah, hospitality and services are kind of important to be in physical locations. It helps. It helps. So yeah, no, we'll we'll see. Like I said, it's going to be interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, outside of IX, just as an industry, what happens over the next few years? It's going to be interesting to see, and and we're watching it. I think we all are. We're all looking to see. Well, what, what is Company X doing? What's Company Y doing? How are they reacting to this? And what's their long term plan going to be going forward? Yeah, it's been interesting a couple times on uh, social media sites when there's you know the Forbes article or whatever saying like remote doesn't work. It's it's inefficient. And then you'll get somebody like the CEO of GitLab. He's like, really? Because that's all yeah. our business is. And as you can see, we're very successful. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting to see that the business world kind of counterplaying back and forth on each other, trying to kind of figure itself out. And it also depends on the business culture, too. If you have managers, supervisors, those kind of folks who are trained and know how to deal with remote and how to measure and how to uh, handle remote employees... It's very different versus throwing somebody who doesn't even know how to operate in that space and then, you know, it falls flat because they just don't know how to effectively use the tools. You know, if you're if you're not able to communicate on Slack as a manager or, you know, use teleconference, yeah, I can understand why this is difficult for you and why your team is suffering and why you think this is a terrible thing. So, so OK, we've covered kind of the business business side of things um, and uh, how things are going to maybe change in the future. Let's let's talk a little bit on the software side. Mm -hmm. Are there projects that you see, again, BSD or open source in general, that are being developed or being improved that you see and you get excited? For? So I, I keep my eye on a lot of things, right? Um, well, that is kind of your yeah. job to, to keep your eye yeah. on, the, on the pulse of the. 
there's there's lots of neat things happening out there. You know, obviously I'm in the storage world, so you know I tend to lean towards that. But uh, yeah, I'm really excited to see. You know, just from us personally, I'll throw the plug out there what we're doing with like TrueNAS scale now and containerization and bringing Kubernetes and Docker and all that good stuff and KVM. That that's exciting. We have a lot of people really excited by that and personal interest and hobby you know i i'm always been kind of a little bit of a cryptocurrency nerd so i'm really watching things like chia and filecoin and those things with a lot of interest just to see where where they go and how the how the market reacts to those um you know it's hard to say you know if i wanted to put my speculative hat on it's interesting to see things happening at like microsoft and their embracing of open source as weird world I've woken up into where Microsoft has, you know, you can run Debian on it. Yeah. <laughs> a box or Ubuntu. What the heck? I went to bed and woke up and all of a sudden Microsoft's got a, a terminal now and I can do sudo and apt and wait, what? Like, anyway, weird. You know, it's neat to see those trends mm-hmm. and see some of that stuff happening. Again, I'm, I can't speak for Microsoft. I'm not plugged in over there, but you know, it's interesting to see other companies starting to wake up and, and kind of smell the open source and, not only that, put some actions behind the words. It's interesting. So it's a neat time we live in. I think I think this is the era where we're going to see more and more of that kind of shift of what you thought was kind of legacy mainstream businesses putting more and more emphasis on their open source elements of their uh, software stack. Yeah, so speaking of the Microsoft thing, Microsoft actually has their own Linux distribution, not WSL. They actually have their own entire Linux system. Um, they don't put out ISOs, mm-hmm. but all the code is, of course, open source. And if you, anybody has skills in actually building images can go get the code and build their own Microsoft Linux, which is, That's, it's weird to think uh, about, again. again, from us knowing Microsoft so far back and dealing with them for so long to be like, okay, so are there any, is there any credence to the rumors that Windows is going to become the Microsoft UI sitting on top of a yeah. Linux kernel and, eco- and user land. This is where I say, I know you're speaking English, but the words you're stringing together don't make any logical sense, right? Because the world I knew growing up in the year I grew up in, like that just, wait, what? <laughs> like that does, does not compute. But, you know, again, maybe the, I, I, that's what I think is going to be interesting over the next decade is to see what we thought was some of these really entrenched, you know, uh, we hate open source, closed source is the way, it's a, it's a threat to business. Those walls are getting broken down. And we're seeing open source pop up in more and more and more places where you wouldn't have you know, ever guessed or expected it to, to show up. So I take that as a win, not, you know, for all of us, you know, again, the right to repair and tinker and be able to see what I'm running and know what's there and be able to audit it. The transparency, those are all good things. So interesting thing you brought up about open source popping up in, in more and more places, because this seems to be on one hand, you have that. And then on the other hand, you have kind of everyone's expectation that open source is trending towards one thing, like open source operating systems will be Linux and that the BSDs are going to go away. Now, obviously, as a longtime BSD person, I'm pretty sure that you don't believe that BSDs are going anywhere. So what is your kind of thoughts on the, how, how do I want to phrase it? The fact that open source is, is, is expanding, but yet at some elements, people are thinking that it's actually shrinking into the, the variety of open source. Well, 
you know, I'll, I'll shoot straight with you. You know, FreeBSD, I think, isn't going away, but it's becoming more and more of a, a research and hobby OS. And that's fine. There's a place for that. And you need that. That's an incubator for ideas, right? Yes, it does seem like everything is kind of coming now on top of the Linux kernel. And so you have a lot of variety within that Linux ecosystem, you know, all the different distributions and they each do their own thing. And, you know, you get that's where you get some variety. But at the end of the day, you still end up with Linux kernel, whatever, running. Yeah. What I think will happen, and again, this is just me making a prediction and it'll all probably all be wrong, or you may look back and go, oh my God, he was a genius. But um, who knows? We'll see. I honestly think the next big thing will be some group will go and write a new kernel. It won't be BSD. It won't be Linux. It'll be something that's written in probably like a Rust or uh, another more uh, more recent language. And that'll become the next big thing. You'll probably end up with it going up on GitHub and it'll end up some company will say, we're getting behind this and it's going to be the basis for our new cell phone or we'll use it in cars or something to, to kind of kickstart it. And that'll be the next hotness, right? You'll you'll see a shift. And then now you'll have this ecosystem of Linux plus the new thing, you know, and you'll see that. And that's that's fine. You know, I think that's the tools are all there. The environment has been created to foster that kind of innovation and development. And now it's just people kind of voting with their feet. Mm-hmm which is really a great right to have. I get to choose what I want to run. And not only me as an individual, but me as a business, which one makes the most sense. So we'll just wait and see. Nobody, I don't think anybody's forcing it to be to shrink down into one system or ecosystem. There's no, I don't think there's any nefarious, you know, Microsoft sitting on top saying, ah, it's all going to be this one kernel or anything. It's just, you know, the gravity has shifted towards this. And then over time, I think you'll start seeing other things pop up and the gravity will shift away. It's going to come and go. Yeah, so the one thing that's true about our industry is that everything happens in cycles. I mean, you, you think hardware, you know, everything was originally had big, strong servers and terminals. And then it shifted away to distributed where everybody had their own system that were networked together. And then it kind of started to shift back to where you had thin clients that were all running on one big server. And then yeah. it started to shift back to, and everybody's got a laptop that they're using. And now, of course, everything is in the cloud and we're back to consolidating yeah. everything again. So I've kind of wondered if the same thing is going to happen in OSs, where if you look back to the late 90s and early 2000s, you had a vast array of operating systems trying everything and everything. Yep. And then they've kind of shrunk down. And of course, now with like Linux, you, know, you can run Linux on just about anything for any purpose. But I've wondered if we're going to see kind of, I don't want to say a fracturing, but specialized use case OS is starting to pop up instead of just taking Linux and cutting all the things out and changing all the things so it can do a specific task. If we're going to start to see smaller, more kind of user focused OS development, that's specifically focused on a certain thing. Like for instance, yeah, if, you're, very purpose yeah, if you're building and you know, a, a military appliance that's going to be in hostile territory, maybe OpenBSD is the way you want to go because you need it to be networked, but you need it to be as secure as possible. Yeah. But then that's not going to apply to something that you might want back in in running in the Pentagon on someone's desktop because that use case is different. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely what will happen. I think what will happen is right now the gravity has shifted. Linux has a lot of that. But what's going to happen is over time, it'll get a little top heavy. There's going to be a high maintenance cost to keep all this stuff running on this now and you'll start seeing opportunities pop up for other players to come in and say oh here's our 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 unique solution to this problem which you can't really move as quickly and and adapt on a, a linux because they're still paying the maintenance cost for the price of success right that's fine as i say that's that's just the cycle at work i think and and over time we'll see more of that happen where these other players pop up it could be bsds it could be something we haven't heard of yet which that's actually the more interesting thing to me is the what we haven't heard of yet. Right. What's going on? Who's that? That I say kid. I don't want to be mean. <laughs> it could be somebody my age. But who's that next person out there who has that idea 
that they're just now starting to put down and architect and design and say, this is how we should do a kernel again in like a Rust or a Go or some other language. And, you know, here's how, here's my next vision for what file systems should do. And yeah, what's often interesting is a lot of the times it looks very similar to what we just did, but there'll be some unique right. twist on it that gives you a competitive advantage. And then all of a sudden business picks it up and says, Ooh, if we run this, we're 10% faster than our competitors. And yeah, there you go. Yeah. Everything just kind of spirals out of that. Yeah. So looking now, taking from looking into the future, let's, let's look a little bit into the past. Are there any kind of major things that pop out to you that you know now that you wish you knew when you first got into tech? Hmm. Oh, gosh. Things I wish I knew when I first got into tech. Well, I mean, time and experience is honestly the best teacher. But looking back, you know, I wish I had maybe spent a little bit more time on some of my, my fundamentals on some of the early programming. The, the, the problem with it in the early days was, too, some of the schools I went to and took classes. A lot of times I found later in life that the classes were taught by people who hadn't done it in 10 years. And so the material was pretty dated. And so I did spend some cycles there going, oh, okay, I just learned something I also learned on my own when I was 14, you know, just by, you know, picking up a more current book, right? So I, I guess, you know, going back, I would talk to myself and say, here's the things I, I, you know, you should be willing to go look at some of these more fundamental things in, you know, C programming or OS and take maybe some of these other classes, or here's where to dig in where the more current information is versus just, oh, go to school and take a class. And hopefully it's current. More often it was not <laughs> in this case. Maybe that was just my misfortune of, you know, the classes that we took. <laughs> so that, that then bridges into the next question, which is for people who are younger um, or people who are older who are considering a career change, what are the kind of key pieces of advice that you would give them if they want to get into working in open source and, and technology? Do it. That's, uh, no, I'm, so I'm actually, this is something I'm really passionate about and I'm making light of it, but seriously, just do it. I, I'm privileged in the position I met that I get to interview a lot of people for a lot of different positions. And I'll just let you guys in on a little secret, but nine times out of 10, the best resume item is your GitHub profile or your GitLab or you know your Git equivalent, right? Or whatever source code you use. Go find something to contribute to. Find something you're, and, and the key is, find something you're personally interested in. Not something you're forcing yourself to do. It shouldn't be a chore. I'm not talking the guys who just need to do it nine to five because they want to pay the mortgage. I mean, find something you're passionate about. If it's about writing little apps for your car because you're you know, a car guy, do it. Contribute to that. It'll keep you interested. It's a hobby. It's great. If it's, you know, if you want to surf for the weekend and you want to go write an app that helps you keep track of where to go surf and where the best waves are, do it. Just find something you're passionate about and get involved. There's, I almost guarantee you, there's probably already a project on GitHub or if there's not, make one, but contribute. And because it's all open and transparent and out there, that's some of the best resume material you could possibly ever have. I mean, take your classes, learn, all that comes as part of it. And some of, the, some of it's learning on your own or formal. Fantastic. Do what you need to do get, to get the skills. But find the thing that you're really, that just motivates you and you're excited about. And go find something to contribute to. A couple of lines of documentation here, a few bug fixes there. And then as you dabble, eventually it's like, ooh, I really want this feature. And you contribute something larger. That's that's honestly the best thing you can do. And I would encourage anybody, I don't care how young or how old you are, just find a project and find it, find it something you're interested in anyway, and just start contributing. Yeah, again, even if it's small and just helping answer questions on a forum, you know, for other people who are just on their journey, that's going to push you. 
And uh, as I said, as long as it's something you're passionate about, I think you'll keep the interest and it'll, it'll motivate you to keep moving forward. And then you'll wake up one day and go, oh man, I've learned a lot, you know, moved a long ways. So Yeah. And for those that, that don't, that don't know you, I can, I can vouch that I know for a fact that that's how you feel because that's originally how we actually met and how I came to work at IX. So I had met your brother, Ken, at Southeast Linux mm-hmm. Fest and he was working on the limited desktop and I helped you know, him do some some bug testing for it, kind of search some bugs. I helped port it to Slackware back in, I think it was 14 or 15. Mm-hmm. And then just kind of helped with him. And I ran into bugs that he couldn't reproduce because I was on Linux and he was on FreeBSD and he had bugs that he could produce that I couldn't reproduce. And eventually he was like, you know, hey, why don't you, you would you mind running PCBSD so then we can actually work on the same bugs together, which I was happy to do. Got involved in PCBSD, helped Ken with, with Lumina. And then you know, one day he's like, hey, so, you know, you've, you've started to learn QT, but are you interested in maybe working on it and doing it more? And I was like, well, well, yeah, definitely. Sure. And then, you know, he's like, okay, well, my brother wants to talk to you. And I'm like, okay, sure. And and we talked and I was like, you know, yeah, I've done Puppy Linux development. I know, I know how to do bash stuff. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, do you know QT? And I'm like, not really, like just a little. And you were like, well, are you willing to learn? Like, can you learn? You've been yeah. doing stuff with Lumina. Yeah. I can see what you've done if you're willing to learn, let's do this. And I was like, yeah, I'm yeah. willing to learn. And then you were like, okay, great. We're going to bring you on board. The rest is history. Yeah. That's what I look for is I look for somebody who's got the passion and the drive. I like to say, I like to hire people who are nerds who do it because they can't help themselves. Right. So that's kind of like me, like on the weekend, it's like I'm at home screwing around with my chia farm or something, right? Like I, I can't help myself. I got to have these little cool tech projects to do. You find people who are passionate about it and they will learn what they need to learn to be successful in whatever role you put them mm-hmm. in as long as you know, they're passionate about it. So that's, that's a big, I guess, key thing for me. And, it, and, and it's not the same for everybody. Again, everyone's passions and, and interests are going to be very different. But just figure out what yours is. Find a way to contribute to it. If, if open source or software development is, is the thing you want to get into... I guarantee you somebody has written an app that helps you keep track of, you know, surfing statistics or, you know, where the best waves are, what boards to use and what conditions. And you can get involved and contribute there if surfing is really your passion, but you also want to do development, right? I don't care. Model railroading, I'm sure there's an app for that. Like you take your pick. Again, I know cars, there's all kinds of apps, you know, for your cars and drag racing and all kinds of good stuff. So just figure out what that is, find it, contribute towards it, and then, you know, just see what happens see where the road takes yeah you. there really is pretty much a project for everything i know uh linus torvald <laughs> yeah. of course who's known for linux who's known for git he actually produces or he's worked on and he developed a scuba diving program to track scuba dives because he does scuba diving and he's like well there wasn't a program so i yeah. he, he made a program so he could track the scuba diving that he did like there is definitely projects out there yeah i mean if you can find one that doesn't exist just starting it will probably yeah, cause people to suddenly go, hey, there's a project that's yeah. on this. I need to go get involved. Absolutely. Even better if you get to be the first one, because then you put it up, you put up a, an idea. Heck, it might not even work. It could be crewed up on GitHub. Next thing you know, you got a bunch of other people like, oh, man, I, I've been looking for something like this. I didn't know it exists. Thank you for getting it started. And then just see where it goes from there. Yeah. Speaking of crude uh, projects, I actually just started a very crude uh, stenography program for um, QT that's really crude right now. But hey, hopefully it'll go somewhere. And I do have to, I do have to slightly warn you on the work side of things. When you're talking about people that can't help themselves on the work weekend, um, I'm planning to dig into scale this weekend a little more. So, uh, awesome. so I might be well, finding some bug tickets on Monday. 
Absolutely. Or if you have questions, hit me up. But I'm enjoying it. It's it's neat. There's there's so many new different tools and stuff to play with. I've really gotten big into building container images and stuff, and I find that fun. And it it kind of harkens back to some of my BSD ports. Right. Right. I'm compiling and stuff again, except now it's a little different mechanism on how we ship the images and then deploy them, and you start bringing Kubernetes into the mix, which is a big scary for word for I run a lot of small containers everywhere. Right, yeah. <laughs> anyway, no, it's good stuff. So Chris, I really uh, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Um, I know it's in the middle of the work day. We both probably need to get back to work, uh, but I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and chat with me. It's been a good talk. Oh, not a problem. Always happy to talk to JT and uh, take care and I'll see you online. 